Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. This week is the second annual Patent Quality Week, as put on by Engine, the nonprofit for startups. For many years now, I've criticized the patent system for, well, a wide variety of reasons. Uh, but the most basic one is that there are way too many terrible, overly broad, misleading, or obvious concepts that are getting covered by patents and then being used by whoever holds the patents to, in, in my mind at least, really hinder and hold back innovation. Uh, and i you know, I, I believe that there is a place for patents in certain circumstances, but only if those patents are actually for specific, new, and non-obvious inventions. Today on the podcast, we want to explore the patent system a little more deeply, including looking more closely at how patents work and how they often don't work, uh, and exploring more specifically a few different industries, since patents often seem to operate very differently in, in those different industries, and sort of our understanding of patents is often influenced by how we interact with them and, and how we see them. Uh, just by way of general background, the Constitution uh, gives Congress the right to create a patent system for the purpose of promoting the useful arts, which means enabling more innovation and generally for the benefit of the public. The patent system is designed to cover actual inventions, not just ideas, and can only be granted for a limited time, which in the patent system is generally about 20 years, which I will note is much more reasonable than the copyright system, which is, uh, as some say, forever minus a day in some cases. <laughs> uh, part of the deal with a patent is that you have to describe your invention with enough detail so that the public can actually understand what it is that you're claiming. And as such, in theory... The patent is supposed to contribute to the public knowledge for others to build on after the patent expires, mostly. Uh, but for the term of the patent, the patent holder has a monopoly on that invention. Now they can choose to license it or do other things with it or manufacture it or in some cases do nothing with it. Uh, to get a patent, you have to apply to the patent office where a patent examiner who, in theory, should have some expertise in the field will, will review it. Uh, they're supposed to determine if the patent is new and hasn't been done before, and also if it's non-obvious to those who are experts in the space, uh, and if the patent sufficiently describes the invention itself. Now, a key part here is that any prior art is also supposed to be examined to help make this determination, though there are some limits, I think, on the kinds of prior art that the patent office tends to look at. Anyway... To discuss some of the different industries and how patent issues are raised in those industries, we have two of our very favorite patent experts on the podcast today. We have Abby Reeves, who is the IP counsel at Engine and who's been on the podcast a few times before. And we have Charles Duan, who is a postdoc research fellow uh, at Cornell Tech and also a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So uh, welcome to both of you. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. Great. So uh, I want to talk about the 
the industry that we most often talk about, I think, when we're talking about patents, and that's the tech sector, where certainly there's been plenty of controversy over software patents, but also over other types of patents as well. So, Abby, do you want to start out and just kind of talk about what kinds of patent issues you see come up most often in the tech sector? Yeah, Sure. So I think uh, at the outset, when we're thinking about the tech sector uh, broadly, we're also thinking about all different types of companies with a range of sizes and a range of different types of innovation. So very, very broadly speaking, I think high-tech companies uh, perhaps very obviously interact with the patent system as patent applicants. Historically, in recent years, IBM and Samsung, for example, have been among the companies that obtain the most U.S. patents each year. Um, And there are a lot of really large tech companies that will basically patent anything that an engineer does while they're on the clock. Um, So there's a lot of patenting done by tech companies. Um, There is also, though, a lot of accusations of infringement in the tech sector. And so a lot of tech companies of all sizes are experiencing the patent system as accused infringers. And so one of the things you mentioned in the introduction, Mike, was the concept of these terrible, overbroad patents, things that are not specific patents that claim things that are not new, patents that claim things are obvious. And those are also quite common in the tech sector. And I think there are a variety of reasons for why that is the the fact, but it is the way the situation is with the tech sector. Um, So we end up with a lot of litigation. We also end up with a lot of abusive litigation, suits that are filed using these overly broad, weak patents by patent assertion entities, the quote-unquote patent troll. And then the other thing that we have seen emerge um, perhaps a little bit more recently is um, the the tech company strategy of um, offensive versus defensive acquisition of patents because in the in the interest of protecting yourselves from litigation, especially from a competitor or from an operating company, sometimes having your own patent portfolio that you can then turn around and cross-license or cross-threaten in litigation can be a valuable tool. So those are some of the, the first things that come to mind for the entire sector. Yeah, and 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 I want to dig in just on one point point of that. I mean, there are a few different areas we could go, but but you know, I, I found it. There's this sort of um, perpetual motion machine uh, that's that's driven by this, where you know, I think a lot of especially newer um, tech companies, internet companies, are actually less interested in in patents, right? I mean, you talk about the IBM, right? IBM for many years has always been like the leading patent. They they love their patents. They love getting patents, right? But I think a lot of the newer firms actually really aren't that interested in getting patents. And yet, for, for for defensive purposes, they feel that they have to patent everything. And it just becomes this weird industry and this weird belief that like, you know, Google and Facebook and, and whoever else need to get as many patents as they can, not because they ever really plan on asserting them proactively, but they need them for defensive purposes or to, th- you know, cross, you know, to, to threaten when they're threatened, you know, to threaten back. Um, and it just becomes this sort of, you know, uh, you know, nuclear war setup where, you know, we need to, we need to have as many missiles that can destroy the world 60 times over because the other side has that many. And we just have to keep building up our stockpile of, of weapons, even if we never actually want to use them. It's, it's like purely trying to, to, to stop that, you know, to me, that alone is, is, is a problem. And so Charles, like what's, what's your take on, on kind of that 
that impact of everyone just trying to get more and more patents because they they need to, even if they never actually plan to use them. Yeah, it's a it's a phenomenon that I think a lot of people have observed. And you know, if you look back at the history of software patenting, I think you can you can kind of see how we got ourselves into that sort of mess. Um, back in the seventies, when when computers first started being a thing, people thought of um, software essentially as mathematical formulas or algorithms. And you know, there are a couple Supreme Court cases from back then that basically say software is just math. Math is um, not something you can get a patent on, end of story. Now, that didn't seem to do much to the software industry. They seemed to do pretty well without patents. But then you get a couple of decisions from the um, from the 90s, early 2000s, um, particularly one uh, the two um, in Ray Allapat and State Street Bank, that essentially reverse what the Supreme Court has said. They say, well, if you run the algorithm on a computer, now you got a machine and a machine is patentable. So therefore <laughs> the software has to be patentable. And so, you know, starting from then you see this explosion of software patents because, um, because the courts have just opened the doors to people essentially reciting, run this algorithm on a computer and that's your meal ticket to getting a patent. And, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and even, and I, I, this, this, I've been obsessed with this for a while. So like, you know, th there's, you know, part of the issue was that you had all those years where the software industry developed the seventies and the eighties, where, where you really had the software industry happen, where, where there were no effectively no patents or very, very few patents because people thought most of it was unpatentable. And then, you know, and, and through the nineties, honestly, and then it's the late nineties where, where, you know, the, the doors swing wide open. And so, you don't have previous patents, which is often the thing that people look to for prior art. Uh, and you, you have none of those because nobody was even trying to get patents on those things because they didn't think it was patentable at all. And so then suddenly, you know, ideas that, you know, somebody, you know, files for a patent in the year 2001 on something that was actually done in like 1974, but there was no patent on it. So nobody points to, to a, a prior patent as patent art as prior art and, and says like, you know, therefore, I should get a patent, and the patent office seems willing to go along with it. <laughs> exactly. So, I, I mean, one of the problems was that, you know, back in the day, the patent office really relied on its database of patents as its source of kind of what did the state of the art look like. And for software, before the 90s, there just weren't any. So, you know, sure, people were building all sorts of really cool programs and building all sorts of really cool computer devices and things. But if the patent office can't find those sorts of things, because, you know, they're not going to go to a store and purchase products to figure out, you know, what what inventions are patentable, um, they're going to have to they're going to have to grant patents. And so during that period in the early 2000s, you end up with this this flood of software patents on things that honestly, most people would say are, are very, very conventional ideas. And, you know, Mike, to your to a point earlier, a lot of the companies, they see other companies starting to get patents. They say, well, we got to stockpile up on them too. And so you end up with this mass of patents. And so part of the problem is that you just end up with a lot of patents out there and these companies get into this sort of nuclear war situation. But then the other problem is what happens when one of those startups goes out of business? The patents are still there. They get auctioned off to somebody and that somebody says, hmm, you know, these are some um, you know, these, these are some potentially very valuable patents. A lot of people are using these very basic technologies. Maybe we can go off and make some money off of them. And of course, this is what gives rise to um, non-practicing entities, these companies that basically buy up patents from distressed firms and use them to go after startups, other companies. Um, this, this led to a great deal of controversy, I think, within the software industry and, um, and outside. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the incredible things to me is, you know, when you talk to actual engineers uh, and, and people at these tech companies, you know, almost 
everyone that I've spoken to hates patents. Like, they, you know, it's like you would think that if, if patents are so important to innovation and, and you know, patents are like this, this, you know, big deal, you know, almost everyone I know, even many people who have patents, you know, by, by nature of the companies that they work at, they, they, you know, I mean, they don't, they don't hold the patent. Their, their employer usually does, but who got patents with their name as, as an inventor, um, don't, don't like them and don't think they're good and don't think they're valuable and don't, and, and think that their own patents are a joke. I mean, over and over, I hear that. And, and it feels weird just in general that the, the people that, you know, you think should be benefiting from this um, are, are, are not. And, and so, sort of a, a related issue to that, and, and Abby, I'll ask you about this, is, you know, you know part of the, the whole idea of the patent system and what we're constantly told is the reason why patents are so important and so useful is because of the, um, you know, descriptive nature that the patent is supposed to add to the, the knowledge that then people can build on. But, you know, I, in the tech sector especially, almost never hear of anyone saying like, you know, I learned to do this because of the patent. You know, if something went off patent and now I can now I can make it because I I learned it from the the claims in the patent. Um, you know, how often is are patents especially in the tech sector actually instructive for for folks in the industry? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great point and I think I don't have an answer to that last question, how often. Um, <laughs> but I definitely feel uh, 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 close sympathy to the to the point that you're making. And I think part of this comes <laughs> down to um, when you're thinking about software, like you're thinking about software, you're thinking about code, you're thinking about very specific instructions to tell a computer to do X, Y, Z, all of the above. And were you to go in and file a patent that was so specific to say, here's the code that I'm patenting, nobody else can use this code then we might be having a different conversation. I think that that level of protection is afforded through copyright. And so we wouldn't need patent protection on, on mm -hmm. that level of detail in software code. Um, so the patents have been used to expand the scope of what the protection goes to. And instead of saying this, this instruction to tell this computer to do function X in this very specific way, what we get is claims that are very functional, that are very generic, that are very vague. And it's more saying a computer that can do um, this function. And that was something that Charles was, was talking about going back through the, the Supreme Court and the Federal Circuit case law. Um, it ends up with a situation where you can basically try to capture and get creative in your claim language to capture a computer performing a specific function. And um, that's not great because then it just precludes everyone else from writing code to have a computer perform that function for coming up with a better way to, to perform that function. Um, it creates this huge expanse in the innovation space where people can't tread and um, you either need to clear out that patent, which is very, very expensive, or you just have to proceed uh, at risk of infringement, which depending on who holds the patent might not be a very risky proposition, but if uh, depending on who holds the patent could be a very risky proposition. Um, I also wanted to so, just uh, oh. note one other thing from okay. this conversation about the, the function that these patents serve, because I think um, the way that big companies can go about acquiring patents and the way small companies can go about acquiring very large uh, patent portfolios is different. So yeah, IBM can and does obtain a lot of patents every year. Um, and the big companies can get these big arsenals and can set up these nuclear war type situations. But if you're a small entity, you just can't amass that very large portfolio. And so our inclination towards more 
and more and more patents in these tech companies um, creates uh, an asymmetry depending on company size, which also feels pretty unhealthy for the overall innovation ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, there's the famous story, this is going way back of when IBM went to Sun, when Sun was actually still a startup, uh, and and sent in their lawyers and said, you you infringe on, I forget the exact number, and I forget the, the exact details of the story, but said, you know, basically, you infringe on these six patents. And Sun engineers and lawyers, like, went through the patents and were like, no, actually, you know, we, we don't infringe on any of those patents and and you know the the ibm lawyers are like well we have this other batch of like ten thousand patents and we're sure that you infringe on some of them do you want us to go find which ones you actually infringe on or do you want to just cut us a check which you know doesn't seem great for innovation in general <laughs> but but it you know was sort of an indication of and this is before you know the the you know the the software patent explosion and and all of these other issues that have that have since come up and i think was was kind of a representative example of of how how these patents are often used which is just like a tool to 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 cash in and and make some money and in fact like you know Charles you brought up this idea of like you know the startups that go out of business and then sell off their you know vague you know meaningless patents that didn't actually contribute to any of the actual you know technology innovation advancement um, but like you know I, I vaguely recall there was even a book like you know recommending that that you know uh, investors like seek out you know, failed startups to buy up their patents. And, and you know, there, there was this whole push for, for, for this nature of, of, you know, however you want to refer to it, patent trolling, or just, you know, collecting these, these patent portfolios in order to, you know, in my mind, shake down companies that are doing the actual innovation. Um, you know, one, there, there are a lot of different elements here, but one, one part that I think often gets lost, and this is, this is something that I, I keep, you know, trying to bring attention to uh, is, you know, we talk about the, the elements needed for a patent and you talked about, you know, how it has to be new and it has to be non-obvious. And for whatever reason, I feel like those two things get combined into just new, right? So w when we talk about the non-obvious aspect, people focus on, on, on prior art, but, but to me, at least prior art determines the, the novelty, you know, is this new? Um, whereas the non-obvious one strikes me as something different. And so for like, for a long time, I've always argued that, you know, uh, independent invention, if you see multiple people effectively inventing the same thing at the same time, that speaks to the obviousness of it. You know, there are certain things, and I think there've been all these studies now that have shown that there are certain ideas and breakthroughs and innovations that just sort of seem to occur naturally and seem to occur naturally in multiple places around the globe. Just, you know, everything that is happening, the way the world is is working, the different technologies, people start to piece together what is the next major breakthrough and multiple people do that at separate times. And so to me, all of that should be evidence of of obviousness and therefore unpatentable. And so I've, I've made the claim for a long time that, that, you know, if you're getting independent invention, multiple independent invention, that should at least be an indicator, not, not necessarily definitive, but it should be an indicator of non-obviousness and the patent office should consider not granting a patent. If you're getting tons of patents that are all you know, patent applications, all in the same thing. Um, can, can, can either of you, I guess, speak to, speak to this, 
the difference between non-obviousness and and novelty in 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 the patent process. Yeah. So so um so I so Mike, your your intuition is completely correct. There there are these two different requirements. There's you know it has to be new, and that's a test of whether or not you see the same invention described you know in a paper somewhere else. And there's non-obviousness. And the idea behind that is maybe, you know, there isn't a published paper that says this is how you do the invention exactly. But, you know, it got almost all the steps and everybody else knew that you could have done the other steps. Or here's another paper that has the other steps and anybody would have thought to combine these two things. Um, you know, that that's intuitively how the process of invention works, that, you know, you don't just... You, right. you, you don't just like do only things that you see written down and anything else is very hard. You know, people, inventors are smart. And the idea is that you don't want to block people who are doing simple combinations of things because everybody does that. The problem, though, is that when it gets to the nitty gritty of the law, um, how you actually decide what can be put together um, ends up being more complicated, and it ends up being a thing that gets fought over by the courts a lot. Um, there was a case that I remember following um, some years ago. This was um, this was my first piece of published fiction, so I've always been very proud of this. Um, and but it, it related to the um, to to that. You remember there was a patent that Amazon got on taking a photograph of an object. Um, with a white background behind it, so that you didn't see the sand or anything. Um, there, you know, there are a bunch of stories about this thing. You know, how in the world could anybody get a patent on this sort of thing? And so, you know, I spent some time going through the patent and trying to figure out what happened. And what ended up happening was that there were was that the patent basically said taking a photograph of an object with white background and sand, but at a particular angle. And they just said, you know, they just give a numerical range for the angle, right? And you would think, well, you know, if you're going to take a photograph of something in front of a white background, don't you just try whatever angle works? And then the one right. that works is the one you use. Like, I could just move the camera around and try to find But the problem is that you're not going to find somebody who wrote down, and by the way, do it at 37 degrees at 57 inches away from the product. You can't find something that has that written down, and the courts have basically taken obviousness to the sort of absurd end that unless you actually find written documentation saying, yeah, try that particular range, this is not obvious. Right. And you know, that, that I think is a real difficulty um, for, for, uh, for the patent office, especially because I think that a lot of times they see these sorts of patent applications and they know, you know, this is just, you know, this is just common sense, but how do I prove what common sense is? And given the way that the law is developed to make it really hard to say what common sense is essentially, um, a lot of these patents end up getting through in ways that seem like, seem like they shouldn't. Um, and I think that that ends up being a pretty serious problem because once those patents get out there, you know, you just wait until somebody happens to use the same range and, you know, boom, you've got yourself a patent lawsuit. Right. Abby, did you have something on, on that as well? Yeah. Once the pen gets out there, we bring in the expert, the professor emeritus of whatever area, and they come in and they can say, yeah, this is common <laughs> sense. And the examiners, the patent examiners don't have that opportunity or rarely have that opportunity. There are opportunities for patent owners to put in those sorts of declarations during prosecution to say uh, something about uh, what an expert would think. But really, we don't get the benefit of that common sense from the, the person of ordinary skill in the art, really, until after the patent is issued. And then it's just so much more expensive to to go after the patents that are obvious, as opposed to if there were ways to empower 
patent examiners who also have a lot of expertise to identify that common sense or to find ways for them to right. go ask the professor, yeah, will you put something in writing to say that this is common sense um, that could be more efficient? Yeah, you know, just to, just to sort of build on something you, uh, both of you have said at this point, a lot of times what's going on is that um, the costs that a questionable patent imposes happen before anybody actually really gets to think about whether the patent is valid, right? The decision of whether a patent is valid ultimately has to go to a court. But lots of things can happen with a patent before it goes to court. You can use the patent to, um, you know, go threaten small startups. You know, like uh, like you were saying, Mike, um, a, a big company can go after a small company and say, hey, we're just going to throw 10,000 patents at you. Why don't you, why don't you just cut us a check? A lot of this sort of stuff happens before anyone really has that chance to to test out um, for sure whether the patent is valid. And that's what makes it important for the patent office to get it right in the first place, because a lot of times the value of that patent, um, you know, the, the cost that that patent is imposing on innovators, on innovation, on startups, that's happening before a court even takes a look at the thing. So to the extent that the patent office gets it right more often, they prevent that sort of misuse of patents or um, incorrect use of patents that that can happen down the road. Yeah, and I also, I mean, I think uh, maybe taking a rosier view of patents uh, is uh, patents can serve a lot of signaling functions in terms of signaling to investors that you have something worth investing in, signaling to your customers that you really have created something unique. And so we see patents serving these really positive functions, or they're a proxy for something else. And whether the patent is the right proxy, I don't know, but we don't need to debate that mm -hmm. today. Uh, in order for those parts of the system to work, licensing to work, we do want greater confidence that the patents that are being issued from the patent office are valid so that investors know that they really are investing in something new, so that customers know they really are buying something new, so that your business partners know that you really are contributing something uh, great to the, the venture. So there are a lot of reasons for uh, improving the quality of the patents that are being issued. Um, so, so one thing to, to follow up on, um, Charles, you, you talked about the State Street case and, and sort of the opening of the, the floodgates for software patents. Um, the, the, the Supreme Court eventually started to push back on, on, on the sort of the floodgates on, on a bunch of different kinds of patents, um, including software business method patents to some extent. Um, there's sort of the Bilski case and, and the, the uh, Alice case. Um, you know, do you think that those things are more in control today than than uh, you know than before, and and how much so, if if so? Um. So yeah. So the Supreme Court has um, issued a number of decisions um, on on essentially the patentability of software. Um, they do this under a doctrine um, called Section One Hundred and One or patent eligibility. Um, the idea that certain that, that certain inventions really are just conventional ideas, ways of doing business, um, and just applying them on a computer, that doesn't make them, that doesn't change the, the, their very nature of being just the way that people do things. Um, the Supreme Court's decisions on, on, on this doctrine um, over the last couple of years have very much cut back on a lot of the especially questionable um, patents, 
um, patents in, in, in the software industry. Um, surprisingly, you know, I was doing some research on this. It's not a straight line path. There's a, so there's the Bilski decision from 2010. And then, you know, a lot of people think it's like a straight line decision. It's like a straight line to the Supreme Court subsequent decisions that basically say, no, no, you, you can't get patents on, on software. But there are actually some federal circuit decisions in between. So the appellate court actually sort of cuts back on what the Supreme Court is doing. And right when that happens, you start seeing the software patent go up again. Then when the Supreme Court changes, mm-hmm. the software patents go back down. And what's been going on recently is that there's been, unsurprisingly, a lot of discontent with the Supreme Court decisions from folks who want to get those patents. And as a result, there, there's been a lot of kind of confusion in the law because of the fact that the appellate court keeps trying to um, write decisions that that sort of um, that sort of push back on what the Supreme Court has done. And these are starting to, I think, make these are starting to open the door to some of the software patent questions that we had in the early 90s, 2000s again. Um, so what do we end up seeing in the future? Do we end up seeing the same sort of situation we had during that time? Um, a lot of people are worried that artificial intelligence is going to be like the next software patenting um the, the next software patenting war where people just get tons and tons of patents on right. applying artificial intelligence to such and such things. Um, and so, you know, one hopes that the Supreme Court decisions um, kind of set a precedent, but then there's also the possibility that we end up with a sort of boom bust cycle of lots of patents on a technology um, followed by all sorts of problems. Um, I think that'll be, uh, that, that'll be an interesting thing to watch to see how it develops. Yeah. I I remember being at a conference, this is years ago, uh, where the former uh, chief chief judge of of the the federal circuit was asked about what was the biggest challenge in the in the patent world these days. And his answer was the Supreme Court, (laughs) which I thought was quite telling because they had basically told him he was wrong multiple times over. (laughs) There was that period of time where every federal circuit decision that went up to the Supreme Court kind of got smacked down often, like with some pretty pointed language from from Supreme Court justices telling the federal circuit, like, you're wrong. (laughs) But uh, anyways, one more point I wanted to cover on the tech industry and then we can move on. Um, You know, and I think this is important, right? We, you know, we talked about the the, the term length of, of patents, and you know, it's, it's effectively twenty years, um, you know, give or take a little bit, depending on on some factors. But, um, you know, the the tech industry in particular is extremely dynamic, and and twenty years in the tech industry is a lifetime, right? I mean, you know. It's, it's amazing when you think back, you know, we're 2022 now, like 2002, go back 20 years, how different the world was. There was no Facebook, right? Google was still a pretty small company. There was no iPhone. There was no smartphones. There, you know, there, there was no Twitter. There was no YouTube. You know, it was a very, very different world, you know, a completely different world. Certainly no Uber, no Airbnb, all of these these services that many people rely on today. Um, there were no podcasts. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, though, there, though there was a patent that existed that has since been used against podcasts, but yeah, we'll yeah. leave that aside. <laughs> Uh, but you know, 20 years is, is a, is a massive, it's a, it's a lifetime. And so, you know, how, how do we think the fact that, that, you know, tech in the tech industry, 20 years still being the standard for patents, you know, how does that play out? And, and either one of you can, can take that question, I guess. 
I guess one thing to start with, you noted earlier, Mike, the important disclosure function that the patent system is supposed to provide. Uh, we often also talk about the patent system providing uh, some sort of incentive for innovation. And I think that gets articulated mm -hmm. in terms of if you put a lot of time and money and effort into researching and developing something and bringing it to market, if somebody can just come and copy you on the second day you're on the market, you would lose all of that investment um, that would become some right. cost that you can't recover. And so the patent gives you that safe space to operate. And I think one of the things that is challenging when you think about tech versus other industries is, to your point, how many tech products out there are there that we need 20, we need to be able to recoup 20 years of sales in order to justify the R&D? Um, how long does it take to write the code to do the product development is 20 years of market exclusivity the thing that you need in order to make that investment worthwhile. And I think for a lot of innovations, the answer right. to that is no. Um, and so is it, is the patent term the problem or is the patent as the mechanism the problem? I don't know, but it does feel like the numbers, just the math doesn't add up. Yeah, you know, to, to kind of um, add to that, one of the things that we find particularly in the software industry is that when it comes to why people write software, why they develop new ideas, why they start companies, why they innovate. Um, patents are only one drop in a bucket. There are, you know, people people do it because they want to get first mover advantage. You know, if you can build your company faster, you're gonna you're gonna be the first to market. People um, build software because they just want to fill a need that they happen to have. You look at open source software development; people are doing it without expectations of rights. It's because they just feel like they would like to have it and they want the cred for having come up with something. Um, people do it because they know that's sort of the way the investment industry works: is you show that you have a lot of ideas, and people will start giving you money to build out some more of those ideas. Um, you have these new models like Kickstarter that allow you to fund um, building businesses. So in I think especially in the software world, um, you have all of these different drivers for why people um, want to innovate and want to build new companies and want to build new software. And there's this sort of traditional view that kind of if you don't have patents, then everything falls apart. Nobody has any reason to do anything because everybody's worried about being copied. Um, I think the software industry has always been sort of an interesting example of a disproof of that, that people right. will do things, even if you know you can be copied, even if you let them copy all of your stuff, because um, there's a lot of value to be had just from building something and being the first to, to, to have built it. Um, and that, that, that I think, you know, it, it questions the, the length of the patent, but it also kind of questions the overall approach that I think a lot of people take to the patent system, thinking that kind of it's, it's the one driver to innovation. You know, I think if the yeah. software industry really teaches us anything, it's that we have to look at innovation as a holistic environment, that there are all sorts of factors that contribute to what makes people want to build things. And we don't want to... We don't want to exclude any of those uh, or we don't want to promote one of those at the expense of all of the others. Right, right. Well, I think that that's actually a really good segue uh, into looking at another industry that uses lots of patents that is often held up as, as you know, proof of why the patent system is necessary. And, and even people argue that, you know, that, that this industry couldn't exist without patents, though I have... Uh, 
I, I, responses to that, that <laughs> argument, but but the the pharma and the biotech industry uh, is often held up because of these things where the the amount of research that goes into it, the, the the thinking is the amount of research that goes into it is much greater. The the capital expenditure necessary is much higher. The risk associated, the the uh, chance of failure of some of these efforts can can be higher. And the ease of copying some of those things uh, is is much you know simpler, um, and so therefore people argue that the the pharma and the biotech world absolutely need patents, and it's a completely different scenario from the the tech industry. So, do we want to start out just by talking about uh, is that true or <laughs> or, uh, or or not? So, so there is truth to that, right? I mean, the the product cycle development, the, the product development cycles are longer. Um, you do have a regulatory process that you have to get through. Um, it's not like somebody can just kind of walk up to a computer and program a drug in the same way that somebody can just walk up to a computer and you know program the next Facebook. Um, so, so you do have a difference in sort of the life cycle of invention in the in the biopharmaceutical space, um, and so you do see that the industry has um, depended on patents in sort of a special way, and they do have a number of special rules, you know, extensions for their patent term that deal with FDA regulatory processes. Um, things like that, that, that try to accommodate that. Um, that being said, you know, I think that one of the interesting things is, you know, the assumption is that, well, you've got this very complicated regulatory process. And so you need patents in order to give people the, the reasons to, um, to, to get through that regulatory process. And I think that, that, that that's true a lot of the time. Um, but you end up with complications sometimes because, you know, once you have this patent, the idea is that you're supposed to want to keep innovating to kind of move on to the next product, but you also have this 20-year-plus period in which you're basically making monopoly profits. And, you know, that, that's going to change your incentives for when you're going to want to develop things. You see a lot of these companies start looking right around the 20-year mark. They call this the patent cliff and saying, okay, so what can we do um, so that we can basically get the next round of, um, patented inventions, uh, of patented inventions in so we can make sure that we don't kind of, that all of our profits don't suddenly disappear. Now, in a sense, that's good. You want them to start thinking at the 20-year mark, okay, so what can we do? But... Sometimes the way they think about what should we do is what is the least amount of work we can do in order to keep <laughs> our customer base without actually spending a lot of money on, on innovation. And, you know, you see examples all over the place of companies who, you know, they just make small modifications to drugs. They are able to get more patents on them. They change sort of the formulations of, of drugs. You could, you know, I think that in the abstract, you might say, well, maybe these are valuable and the market will decide whether or not. Um, people want to buy them. In practice, the combination of regulatory complexity and these follow-on patents can end up capturing markets in really weird ways. Um, Michael Carrier has done some really excellent research on this, but I'll just give one example. Um, in the case of a drug called Suboxone, um, the so so they, they didn't have a patent. They had a sort of regulatory exclusivity, which acted just like a patent. But that was about to run out. So they say, okay, so what can we do? Well, they changed the formulation from a pill to a you know like one of those film strips that you stick on your tongue, um, and you know they can get patents on that. That's a different formulation, and then they convince all of the regulatory authorities that this uh, film formulation is safer. So now everybody has to switch over to that market. Um, it turns out that the studies showed that it was actually less safe for children. 
and hmm. they actually just lied to the regulatory agencies um, and said that it was safer. Um, the DOJ actually um, brought criminal charges, and there was a there was a hmm. massive settlement against the company. But you know, I think that one of the one of the things that you see from that sort of story is that patents end up being the sort of double edged sword. On the one hand, yeah, they can incentivize companies to try to think outside the box to get more patents. On the other hand, it can incentivize that sort of behavior. So. It's a complex system. I think it's it's one where kind of, as I was saying with software, you really have to think about the innovation ecosystem holistically and not just about um, how patents affect it. Yeah, I, I know that there was there was another example recently that that came out because of a congressional investigation of of Abbott slash AbbV and Humira. Where you know they actually they, they brought in McKinsey consultants to figure out basically like how do we extend the the monopoly rents that we can get from from this drug, um, and they they like did giveaways with employees where it's like you could get like a MacBook if you came up with like you know a method to effectively extend the the patent and, and block competition. And, and, you know, part, part of the, the method, you know, well, people say like, well, you know, but the patent runs out at the 20 year mark, what can they do? But they can do things like, you know, similar to what you were just talking about with that example, where you sort of remove the old version from the market a few years before the patent actually expires and switch everyone over to the new method. And then it's seen as like going backwards, you know, to, to, you know, if, if a generic comes on the market and, and then even the, you know, the generic companies are kind of afraid to enter the market because now what they're, you know, the, the marketing and the positioning is that this is somehow an inferior product when, you know, in some cases the opposite may be true. Um, and they're just all sorts of games that start getting played, you know, and it's not even getting into like, there were, you know, I don't even remember the details now and, and um, where there were like these lawsuits where, where the companies were sort of, you know, effectively sue to extract a settlement where, where you know, generics would agree to to not enter the market until years after the the patent actually expires. There were all sorts of games played, and and you know that's what you know. Frankly, that that's you know what happens when you have uh, an incentive structure where you're giving someone a monopoly, and there's a clear you know end to that monopoly. You know, companies start trying to figure out how to game the system to to keep the monopoly rents for for as long as possible, um, and you know, I, I don't think that does good stuff for for either innovation or for health. You know, I mean, we're mostly talking about health issues here. Yeah, I mean, in the in the end, you know, if if you're going to give some, you know, people talk about the patent system as a as a quid pro quo, um, in, in a good sense, um, in that mm -hmm. you know you contribute <laughs> knowledge, you contribute inventions, and in exchange you get this monopoly period when you can um, when you can make when you can make um, extra profits and um, avoid having people copy copy your stuff, and that's. So, you know, I think that that's great and it works a lot of the time, but unsurprisingly, when you put somebody in a position of negotiating, they try to get as much as they can for as little as they give. And, you know, you see that in all sorts of situations um, in the in the pharmaceutical space, um, in terms of some of the tactics that you were just talking about for product hopping um, and, and such. But then, you know, in, in, in every other industry, um, I think, you know, explains a lot of what was going on with some of those really questionable software patents that, you know, a lot of times a startup would have an actual invention, they would get a patent on the actual invention, 
And then, you know, at the point that the startup fails, somebody buys out the patents and then spends some time basically using various strategies to modify those patents um, or to, you know, get what are called continuation patents that end up spreading out what they're covering until it's not just covering like a real invention. It's covering like sending emails over the internet. Um, right. and, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, I think that it's, it's an incentives problem, as you were saying, that if you're going to give somebody this very powerful monopoly, they're going to try to figure out how to get it for the least cost. Um, again, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the gatekeeper to that sort of thing? And in a right. lot of cases, that really, that really is the patent office. And so I think that it's a, um, it's something that we have to really consider how the patent office can make sure those, um, the, the, those patents don't, don't make it through the door. Um, I'll mention, so I sit on an advisory committee of the patent office. Um, I'm speaking only on my own behalf, but, you know, I think that, there are a lot of things that the patent office can do to try to improve the quality. Um, you know, we've had research mm -hmm. saying that if they spend more time doing examination, if they dedicate, you know, special cadres of expert examiners to these particularly valuable patent families, um, you know, potential training, potential collaboration with other agencies, lots and lots of things um, that we can do. And I think the point of this um, conversation in a sense is it's worth it because, Patents that are not of the best quality can cause a lot of problems. Yeah, and and I, I think Abby, I'll let you go in a second. Sorry, the the um, you know one of the other elements, and, and this may be getting too far afield from from the the topic of conversation, but I do want to just raise it as an issue. Is I, I feel like because of the incentive structure of the patent system, the bio and and pharma industries have focused their have built their entire business models around patents. And, and so they will often argue that they have no business model without patents. And I don't think that's true. And, and I do wish that they were more willing to recognize that there are alternative business models that don't rely on, on like just massive monopoly rents. And in fact, like first mover advantage, you know, there was a study that, you know, even when generics do come on the market, the, you know, the uh, original a brand name version of of a medicine, for example, still commands a a fairly large, uh, you know, a uh, 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 you know profit margin above what what the generics can charge, just because of the the brand recognition and the willingness of doctors to prescribe the you know the original the brand name over the generic. Um, and there are a whole bunch of other things too. And and I've pointed for for years there there's a. a a great study that was that's now very old was done in the 1950s that looked at even further back um, Switzerland uh, uh, and and how like you know Switzerland where, where much of the pharmaceutical industry is, is and was based um, had no effective patent system for for pharmaceuticals in the early days and effectively that entire industry developed without patents, even though other countries did have patents around pharmaceuticals, but it actually helped there to be more innovation in that space. The same is true. There are examples of that in Germany. Um, there are also examples of that in, in Italy for, for a very long time until actually fairly recently, Italy did not have patents on, on pharmaceuticals and yet had a, a growing pharmaceutical industry. Um, but anyway, so I just throwing out there th this idea that, that patents are the only business model. That's not to say, you know, we don't need them at all, but the idea that they're the only business model, I think is, is, is a problem and leads to these distortions where the companies rely on them so much that any kind of threat to the patent systems is seen as a threat to their entire business. 
Yeah, I mean, you, but, you saw yeah. that with the, with the COVID vaccines just a little bit. Uh, I'll, yeah, just just to mention very quickly, um, you know, with the COVID vaccines, when when people started saying like, you know, trips waiver, let's um, let these other countries um, uh-huh. manufacture despite the patents. Um, the company's main argument was, it's not going to matter because we're relying on our trade secrets. So <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So uh, Abby, sorry, we keep cutting you <laughs> off. Go, <laughs> speak. So I am. Um, it's kind of a, a flavor of that because back before I went to law school, my first career was in uh, health science policy, and I worked at the National Institutes of Health at a time when the agency, and I thought a lot of people in the pharmaceutical sector were very interested in thinking about how to improve the science of how we do translational science because part of the explanation now, which is truthful, as we've talked about, is it takes a very long time to figure out which drugs are going to work to treat which diseases. You have to do the preclinical work. Then you have to do phase one safety trials, and then you get to phase two uh, clinical trials where oftentimes for the first time you're putting the drug in the person that has the disease, and that's the first time you used to be able to figure out whether or not the drug was going to work to treat the disease, and by then you have sunk dozens of years and millions of dollars into this. And then you have to go through a much bigger, more expensive phase three clinical trial before you can get FDA approval. That's a lot of work. What if we could learn very early in target validation, whether or not the drugs that you are exploring were likely to hit and work and have efficacy in the disease population that you're studying. How do we improve target validation? How do we do better, more sophisticated mm-hmm. high throughput screening? How do we put those tools in the hands of academic researchers all across the country? These are sorts of things that are going to reduce the cost that it takes for you to get from the origination idea to market. And so there was a lot of conversations when I was at the agency, and I hope they're still continuing, and I hope everybody is still just as invested and thinking about how can we be smarter and faster in our early stage drug development so that we're only taking success stories into the clinical trial process. And then um, it just kind of shifts the whole economics of how you're doing the, the drug development and then should also impact whether and to what extent you need the patent to recoup those costs. And so I hope that those conversations are still happening. I was involved in them many years ago, and I think that's a really good thing that we need to keep pushing on. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a really good point. There, there's a, a book that is now also, I don't know how old it is, but uh, um, it was called The $800 Pill, I think I think that was the title of it. I haven't read it in in, in a while um, because that was that was the the eight hundred million dollar eight hundred million dollars was the number that was thrown out by farmers pharma industry for for a long time for how much it cost to develop a, a drug. They have since raised that number. Uh, I think I've seen one point five billion. I, it, it may be higher today. Every year it, it it seems to go up. And the argument in that book is like you know, let's break down what it really is. And then like, you know, when, when they were saying it was 800 million, they were basically saying it was really like 20 or $30 million out of pocket for that company. Not nearly the, the much of the 800 million came from like, you know, government NIH funds or, you know, uh, research universities and all of this other stuff. And, and, and a lot of it, you know, was, for things like some of the clinical trials that maybe the companies themselves shouldn't be responsible for, maybe there there are you know a, a government role there. There were there were a number of different approaches that could be taken that you could get that cost down, so that you wouldn't necessarily need to justify this this you know monopoly rents on the on the other end. So I think that's that's a really really good point. Um, 
now we we've we've been talking for longer than we expected, but I do want to touch on a couple other things, and so I, I think we'll do kind of lightning round on some of the other the other areas. Um, the the you know we we talked about tech and 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 pharma and bio, and those are sort of the the big ones. But patent issues do impact other other parts as well, right? So, um, you know, the manufacturing sector right now it's a big deal. Everybody's talking about supply chain issues and things like that. Um, and obviously, if you have patents that are limiting competition, that can be an issue when you have supply chain issues. Do, do we want to just give a, a quick rundown on some of the issues that we're seeing in the manufacturing sector? And Abby, I'll throw that one to you as well. Yeah. So I think one thing we're hearing a lot about in the news lately in the patent space is the automotive industry and the the issues that patents are having in terms of your ability to manufacture cars here in the United States. Because if somebody has a patent in the United States um, and the automotive manufacturer is a accused of infringing it, then you can't manufacture that product here in the United States. You can't create those manufacturing jobs. You can't fix some of those supply chain problems by manufacturing closer to home. So that's a real issue for domestic manufacturers. And with automotive manufacturers, uh, they are cars are computers now. And so you're building computers. You are also building cars. <laughs> yes. There are just so many different patents that could be at issue in a car. And so I think we're seeing an increasing amount of conversation around everything from microchips to uh, features of a tire that um, could throw a, a wrench into things for a domestic automotive manufacturer. And if it's not a valid patent, if it's a real big portfolio that has of dubious importance, it's not great for us to be sacrificing our uh, domestic manufacturing strength in the face of uh, abuses or imbalances in the patent system. Yeah. And, and then another area I wanted to explore, because most of these conversations were, were generally talking about bigger companies or, or even when we're talking about smaller companies, you know, most of the conversation is often about startups. But we've seen how patent abuse can, can impact all sorts of, you know, like mom and pop stores or restaurants or brick and mortar stores. And there was, you know, there were famous examples of like patents on faxing and, and they would threaten any kind of business that had a fax number, you know? So, so Charles, do you want to talk a little about kind of the impact uh, of how patents are, are used to, you know, in my mind, at least sort of shake down a, a whole bunch of small businesses? Yeah. So, you know, this was, you know, I think this was, this was a, a, a big problem, um, particularly a couple of years back. And there was, there were a lot of conversations about, um, about, about sort of the effect of patents on main street. Um, what it comes down to is the fact that it turns out to run a business these days, you have to, use technology um, in some form, even you know, just a restaurant. Um, it's using, it is using computers to display its menus, to run its website, to um, do food delivery. Um, you know, a, a company that sells flowers, they're using, they're using the internet for all sorts of purposes. And so that ended up colliding with the massive patents from the um, late 90s, early 2000s that we talked about previously, um, where companies would find these patents that you know, dealt with basic sorts of ways of using the internet, ways of using computers and said, well, it turns out that all these flower shops use this, use this technology um, in their <laughs> website. We'll just go and like look through the phone book for, for flower shops. Um, that's, you know, I think that, that, that had a couple of effects. First of all, it was pretty awful for the companies who ended up being, being stuck um, with that whole problem. But second, I think this was um, sort of the silver lining of that whole situation. It really brought to light that this was happening, that these patents were out there and that, Patents are not just this sort of sport of kings, as some people like to put it, that they can affect small companies. They can affect companies that seem like they should never really have to think about patents. Um, I remember that back in the day, you know, I, I worked at a startup um, many years ago and, you know, 
you know, like, like your experience, Mike, I think a lot of people were very suspicious of patents sort of in the abstract, but most of the view was, yeah, let's just try to build our company on the radar, hope that you know, the patent trolls find us, and once we're big enough, maybe we'll be able to deal with them. I think it's harder and harder to say that um, these days, especially now that these companies are better at finding um, finding finding potential targets, um, and now that patents are just sort of having this pervasive effect on industries outside of the software space, um, it's harder and harder for people to just say, you know, we're we're, we're going to ignore this problem. Um, and I think it's it, it's becoming more and more important for folks who are not sort of traditional voices in the patent system to start saying, yeah, this is affecting our business. This is affecting what we're doing. And we actually need reform to address our concerns and not just the concerns of folks who spend a lot of time talking with the, with, with the, the folks in Congress about patents. Yeah. And then just one, one final point and, and Abby, I'll, I'll give this one to you. You know, as you sort of hinted at Charles, you know, the, um, you know, the impact of this, people talk about as if it's just sort of big businesses and these companies and, you know, and then even if we talk about the smaller companies, but the, but the fact is it also impacts the the end users and, and, you know, consumers and the people purchasing and using these products as well. So, Abby, did you want to talk a little bit about kind of just the impact on on everyday people who, who shouldn't be thinking about the patent system, but it does impact them? Yeah. So I think uh, some some pretty obvious examples from the conversation we've had just now. Uh, if there's uh, some obvious patents that are preventing generic competition in the pharmaceutical marketplace, and you're the person that needs to buy the drug that you need to treat your disease, and there's only one person out there providing it, it's going to impact your ability to get the medicine that you need to treat your disease, perhaps to stay alive. I think we hear these conversations um, from the diabetes community about the cost of insulin and the affordability of insulin and the roles that patents can play there um, in less, uh, maybe, uh, severe circumstances, also the amount of money that we pay for our smartphones, whether or not we can get the new car that we want, if there's enough of a supply, if it's affordable to us, um, the patent system can play a role in all of those features. And I think this also goes back to the where you started the conversation, Mike, about why we have a patent system and why the Constitution authorizes it in the first place. We don't have patents for the sake of patents. We have patents because we want innovation. We want commercialization. We want the best new technology, but we don't just want the best new technology. We want it out there in the hands of people who can and should be using it. And so to the extent patents can be a tool to assist us, the public, of getting the benefits of innovation, excellent. But where patents are the thing that can stand in the way of us being able to get the benefit of innovation, I think we should be suspicious of them. And to Charles's point just now, it's extraordinarily important that the public understand how the patent system is impacting them so that they can, um, this, we're in democracy. So the patent, the patent office should be responsive to us. Members of Congress should be responsive to us. It's not just the lobbyists for the companies that have a lot of patents that matter. We all matter so much more. And um, we just need to be able to find mechanisms to make sure that policymakers know what our experiences are and feel uh, like they need to listen to us. Well, that sums up everything. So, so <laughs> I think that's a, that's a great uh, sort of final final line. So uh, I am just going to say, uh, Abby and, and Charles, uh, thank you very much for, for having this discussion. I think it's, it's important, I'm sure, a lot of people, you know, recognize that there are problems with the patent system and think about them. But I think this was, you know, hopefully, a, you know, pretty eye-opening and enlightening discussion on on 
you know, many of the different areas and, and the issues and the reason why, you know, having good quality in the patent system actually does matter. And, and, you know, not just accepting <laughs> that, that we're going to get flooded with low quality patents and then just have to deal with it. Um, and so thank you both for, for all of the work that you do and for taking the time to, to be on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the cat. If we don't stand up to them,